something that really uniquely characterizes human beings as a species is that we make music. You may have heard people say, African music is so complex. But it is the combination of the parts that creates that complexity. I'm Dan of Primary Source, and this is What Teachers Need to Know, Africa Edition. The podcast that explores current events, history, and culture of Africa. The creation of this podcast was made possible through support and collaboration with the African Studies Center at Boston University. Why do people create and listen to music? What exactly are its social purposes? In so many ways, music is an invitation. It can be a way to escape the trials of the world or transcend to a different plane of awareness. It offers catharsis and release, sanctuary and security, freedom and hope. When the world around us may be imperfect and painful, music is a bomb that provides healing through an alternative vision of reality. Music isn't just heard, it's felt. And it's this evocative power that is at the heart of music's invitation. An invitation to take refuge, or perhaps to cross over into a new reality. Sure, music is created and consumed because it feels good and it's entertaining. Yet music also forms communities and pulses with an energy that binds people to a shared experience. Musical language is visceral. But its ineffable qualities often intersect with politics. The sounds that blast out of instruments and speakers aren't inconsequential in the social universe we inhabit. Music exists within a constellation of sound, social messaging, yearning, and lamentation. For the downtrodden and abused, music is a form of survival. Its sonic calls for freedom is a cultural nectar fortifying its creators and audience against oppression and injustice. Music often lives at the intersection of cultural expression and political activism. Frequently, songs are imbued with defiance and dissent, empowering the artist and captivating the community of listeners. When music is performed, the stage has the potential to become a soapbox and a podium. A music hall is also a political rally. When musicians turn their creative energies towards social problems and offer messages of change, the artist plays the role of teacher, activist, and prophet. In this episode, we'll be thinking about soundscapes of protest across Africa. We'll be narrowing our attention on examples of anti-colonial and anti-apartheid music before exploring the galvanizing power of Afrobeat and hip-hop. We're joined by Bode Omanjola, a professor of ethnomusicology at Mount Holyoke College and the Five College Consortium in Massachusetts. Among his many areas of specialization, Omanjola is interested in the relationship between music, identity, and social dynamics. My name is Bode Omanjola, originally from Nigeria, and I would describe myself as an ethnomusicologist. And I major basically in West African music, um, especially the music of the Yoruba people. We're also joined by Nathaniel Braddock, a musician, composer, and teacher whose career as a guitarist has entailed extensive collaborations with artists throughout Africa. 
My name is Nathaniel Braddock. I'm a guitar player and a composer and band leader, music teacher. And I've worked with African musicians from many countries. It's been a great privilege for me to be able to do that. African music has always has been evolving in, in a couple of different ways. How exactly does African music evolve? What are the catalysts for change? And what do we even mean when we talk about African music? It can be a little overwhelming when people started talking about African music and making big generalizations. I said, do you like North American music? You know, Neil Young and mariachi. We're going to avoid talking about African music as if it were a monolithic genre. Instead, we'll focus on particular times and places to understand the circumstances that provoked creativity in the service of social change. But before we look at the music of struggle, let's begin by thinking a bit about certain elements that make music such an egalitarian and approachable tool in social movements and community action. One of the reasons why African music has such a global impact Mm -hmm. is because of its inherently conversational character. African musical performances often make members of the group to be partakers in the process of making the music. Take, for example, the simple form call and response. You might think that that is about the leadership of the soloist, but no, it is about how the community, the chorus, enables the agency of the soloist. It builds communities. It encourages each person to make a contribution to the old community. Let's pause for a moment and linger on this idea of communal action. When thinking about ideas to convey to students when teaching about music generally, and certain forms of African music specifically, this has a lot of potential, especially when connecting music to culture, identity, politics, and the roles individuals play and contributing to a whole that is greater than the sum of its parts. It's something that I've used a lot in, you know, teaching, especially when I teach ensemble version of this music for guitar players. You have a job to do, and you have a duty to the other players in your ensemble. You have to play your role and not overplay, because that undermines the whole thing. And so it really comes back to community, responsibility, and kind of a a humility in music. So you want to think about this sort of polyphony. It's a beautiful word because there's many things sounding at once, but how does it not be cacophony, right? Noise. African music may be communal, but what exactly is its social currency? For humans, it is a form of expression. It's a form of communication, certainly. And as far back as you go, you'll find people making music and using music to serve some kind of social purpose. Music has always been a means of communicating knowledge, communicating order, a sense of how things should be, and then also for signaling disorder. If there's something that is out of balance, musicians often will use their music to communicate this with their community. Music is about community 
first and foremost. Of all the ways music can form community, its role in addressing disorder as a clarion call to participate in protest is our paramount interest. Protest could take many, many forms. But with reference to Africa, we're talking about the use of music to strengthen political or social activism. And there's something ironic about using music for resistance or even confrontation. Because music by its very nature is, is nice, it's enchanting, something that we enjoy. But as part of the process of engaging in confrontation or resistance or protest, you need to bring people together. If music is most impactful as a tool for social change when it motivates people to demonstrate, we need to first understand a bit about the backdrop to some of the protest music to emerge in recent memory. Knowing the conditions that brought about protest will key us in to the way art and culture respond to and subsequently shape social realities. We'll start this conversation by thinking about colonialism in Africa. The history of colonialism is extensive and continues to have long-standing echoes today. Without assigning a precise starting point, we can look at certain moments of momentum in the European encroachment and exploitation of the African continent, such as King Leopold II of Belgium and Henry Stanley's establishment of the Congo Free State in the 1880s the Berlin Conference of 1884 and 1885, and Cecil Rhodes' use of violence in consolidating the diamond market. This scramble for Africa and new imperialism cast Africans as primitive and Europeans as the bearers of civilization, all while natural resources were being extracted by force. And when modern weaponry, such as the Maxim gun, were facilitating the British, French, and more general European movement from Africa's coasts, inland, and across the continent, carving it up and imposing borders along the way. But European colonialism took different forms and was not a uniform experience. A little bit of background about colonial rule in Africa, where we had perhaps two main modes of colonial domination. One whereby an invading country goes and, and, you know, to exploit economically through political rule. The other one goes further because it's also thinking about how members of the invading country are also looking for permanent settlement. That is often referred to uh, as settler colonialism. In countries like Kenya, Zimbabwe, South Africa, we had settler colonialism. Of course, in South Africa, which then degenerated into uh, apartheid. So it's not surprising that it's in such countries that you have clearly delineated and, and, and consolidated music of resistance. The British had a sustained presence in Zimbabwe since the 1880s with the arrival of Cecil Rhodes' British South Africa Company. As early as the 1890s, the Shona waged unsuccessful revolts. By the 1960s, the government led by Ian Smith would declare independence from the United Kingdom, ultimately adopting the name Republic of Rhodesia. 
after a civil war, Zimbabwe would gain independence in 1980. So what was the musical culture of resistance? The Zimbabwe were colonized by the British. And in the 1960s and 70s, local people began to intensify their act of resistance. It came from a much more traditional culture. There is a word called chimuringa, which is a Shona word, which means resistance. So in the 60s and 70s, militants would get together, organize all-night vigils, which functioned as a means of political education and also as a, a ground for mobilizing people. So they will teach them songs, they will sing songs of solidarity. In the case of Zimbabwe, it wasn't just musical activism, singing, mobilizing. It was part of a concrete political action. Music was used to encourage people to fight, to physically resist through guerrilla warfare. While not commenting directly on Zimbabwe and Chimarenga, Nathaniel has also thought about the act of revisiting and renewing traditional music. Protest music may be forward-looking in its vision of political and social conditions, but it draws from a fount of past traditions that are repurposed and imbued with contemporary relevance. An idea that I have been thinking about a lot recently is actually a, a word from Ghana. It's a sankofa. It means basically go back and take looking to traditional sources and utilizing them to make new things. Let's discuss South Africa and anti-apartheid music. But first, we need to unpack the term apartheid. In South Africa's racial political history, apartheid was the system of white minority rule over the majority of the population. Apartheid revolved around a legal and economic system that overtly discriminated against those who, according to the Population Registration Act of 1950, were classified as Bantu, colored, and Asian communities. Racial discrimination long predated the rise of the National Party in the late 1940s and the apartheid regime it would establish. But the legal codification of deliberate segregation of black South Africans from their white counterparts would take on increasingly egregious forms as it took root in the country. So what musical foundations did South Africans have in protesting against apartheid? Protest music against apartheid um, actually came through the church, the Christian church, which was taken to South Africa by Europeans who colonized the country. Protest music in South Africa tends to be choral music, music that was used in the church. Take, for example, the song titled Nkosi Sikeleli Africa, which was the anthem of the African National Congress. Um, it was a church hymnal written by a priest in the church. May God bless Africa. There's nothing about that song that is violent, 
or even resisting. It's an act of prayer, something solemn, you know. But somehow, it became the most potent symbol of political resistance in South Africa. The power of music will go beyond the song text to assume a different kind of signification. The example of Nkosi Sikilele Africa is a reminder that the function of music is malleable. The symbolic value may be implicit and coded, more subtext than overt. Within the universe of anti-apartheid symbols, this anthem had the power of collective performance. It's a symbol that gets to be enacted, and this enables group participation. We've talked about the anti-colonial and anti-apartheid examples of protest music, but internal domestic politics have also generated musical innovations, outspoken voices, and sounds that revolutionize politics and art from Nigeria to Senegal and beyond. Let's take a look at Afrobeat in Nigeria, the global influences that informed its sound, its pan-African message, and importantly, the life and politics of the visionary artist at the center of it all, Felakuti. Afrobeat music was formed, defined, and dominated by Fela Anikulapo Kuti, the late Nigerian musician who was known around the world for his political activism. He was able to put together this, this style of music that combined elements of traditional Yoruba, Western Nigerian music with high life music and then with uh, funk, you know. So you see this Af- African-American, traditional Nigerian and West African popular music coming together to form Afrobeat. Nearly every song he wrote was political attacking corruption in Nigeria, speaking to apartheid in South Africa, and singing about uniting black peoples from around the world. When Nigeria was still under British colonial rule, Fela grew up in a household of learning and activism. His mother was an anti-colonial activist, and his father was a minister and school principal. Fela developed his sound over decades, studying at the Trinity College of Music in England in the late 1950s, before going to Ghana in 1967, and the United States in 1969, where he would spend time in Los Angeles connecting to the Black Power movement. Singing in pidgin English, Fela's lyrics had far-reaching influence across the continent. Albums like Zombie rained criticism down on the Nigerian army, which won popular praise and the wrath of the Nigerian government, which raided his commune, beating Fela and destroying the master tapes of his songs. The attacks on his commune only produced more music focused on military and government abuses of power. Not only was Fela's music political, he would go on to establish his own political party, the Movement of the People, translating the spirit of Pan-Africanism into political action. In this spirit of music and Africanism, Fela would say this, quote, the music of Africa is big sound. It's the sound of a community, end quote. Commenting on the conditions of life for his fellow Africans and explaining his musical ethos, Fela had this to say, quote, to think how many Africans suffer in oblivion, that makes me sad. 
Despite my sadness, I create joyful rhythms. I am an artist. I want people to be happy, and I can do it by playing happy music. And through happy music, I tell them about the sadness of others. So really, I am using my music as a weapon. End quote. We were learning about his political activism, and that really tied in very closely with how we identified with the importance of music and as an agent of social change. Yet there are consequences for his activism. Fellow was jailed in 1984 for 20 months by the Nigerian government. Amnesty International designated him a prisoner of conscience. Even after his release, his politically charged music continued to be produced, among which was the 1989 Beasts of No Nation, an anti-apartheid album. Funk, jazz, rock, blaring horns, and guitar riffs characterized the Afrobeat sound brought forth by Fella. But embodied in the sound were West African rhythms and a fighting spirit. Fella had this to say about his music. Quote, With my music, I create change. I am using my music as a weapon. You hear this in the music of Fela, where he'll take a rhythm with the direction of his drummer, Tony Allen. They're trying to recreate the sound of a drum ensemble on this, you know, electric guitars in this band. Again, I'm talking about music, but this is a model that is embedded in social behavior. You know, how people live, what people value as a community. Music elsewhere in Africa continues to surge with sounds of resistance. Let's take a look at hip-hop culture in Senegal and the artists there who are once again channeling social commentary and disseminating their grievances through the egalitarian medium of music. And looking at Senegalese hip-hop, we can also think about the ways artists are in conversation with one another on a global scale. The internet and the ease of walking around with a seemingly infinite digital library of music in our pockets has allowed hip-hop to migrate across the world and cross-pollinate with the rhythms and sensibilities of contemporary Senegalese artists. Hip-hop is also then huge in Africa now. Different cities have different traditions. If we move across to West Africa, to Senegal, first of all, Senegalese musicians claim that they have perhaps the largest percentage of hip-hop musicians uh, in the world after the United States. And what we find in that country is how hip-hop became a means for engaging in political and social activism. Senegal has been going through a lot of social and economic challenges. The youth they feel alienated. They can't get jobs when they finish college. The whole issue of corruption, and of course the, the historical impact of colonial rule, bear a strong weight on the younger ones. And because hip-hop tends to be a youth-oriented genre, they were very encouraged to embrace that hip-hop. The most politically significant use of music in Senegal was done by a group of young people who formed a movement called Yenamer, which means enough is enough. And they played a very active role in the electoral process during the presidential elections in 2012 
where they were able to make young people come out and vote and be very active in the electoral process. Yena Mare translates to fed up. What exactly are the group members and the youth listening to hip-hop in Dakar fed up with? From power outages to school closures and rising prices on basic goods, youth were fed up with the political corruption and economic insecurity that was all too common in their lives. Yet they weren't just victims. They took action. The group consists both of musicians and journalists, constituting a medley of media influencers whose activism doesn't start and end with music, but also consists of a voter registration drive and grassroots social justice efforts. In Senegal, one name that comes to mind is Sheikh Omar Touré, who was part of those who started that social movement that I call the Yename. And what they have been doing in Senegal is to organize concerts, uh, touring the country, uh, set up a hip-hop concert and saying about the political issues in that country with a view to mobilizing young ones to go out and vote. Because the only way you can change leadership in those countries, uh, in any way in the world, is to actually be a strong part of the electoral process. What was it about hip-hop that has made it such an influential and powerful tool? I think there's something inherently resistant about the aesthetics of hip-hop, defined basically as the use of speech-oriented performance accompanied by instrumental music in ways that tell stories. It, is, it tends to be more contemplative in its orientation. If you're not hearing the words, if you're not following the stories, then you're missing a lot that therefore makes it a very vital tool of political expression. The influence of the artists and genres we've discussed isn't confined to the African continent. Their reach is global. Today's digital infrastructure makes it possible to tap into the messages and absorb these catalogs anywhere and anytime. Without even fully realizing it, we may all be listening to music with African influences, swept up in the current of sound that swirls and circulates without border or barrier. In the 21st century, telecommunication and transcontinental travel make people and culture much more accessible today than ever before. To try and compartmentalize or categorize music in this age can be a bit problematic. So much diffusion and hybridization occurs through contact, encounter, and conversations that happen among composers and collaborators all across musical communities. I fell in with a couple musicians who were from Ghana that were living in Chicago, and they had both been in this really successful band called the Western Diamonds. Through that friendship, I began to learn a lot more about that type of music, and I learned a lot more about the the culture and the politics and the history of, of Ghana specifically and that region. And it was it was wonderful for me. And then you know, just having relationships with people from other countries is 
I think so important. After a year or two of working with them, the drummer in that band helped me set up a trip to Accra. And I was met at the airport by the fantastic guitar player. His name is uh, Akable. Yeah, that really began like a whole, a whole other level of relationships. Nathaniel continues to visit Africa, traversing the continent with his fellow musicians. And he brings these experiences and his mentor's insights back to his work with students. Let's think about some takeaways that teachers can offer students to help them learn how to play and appreciate music with an eye towards culture, identity, and the social purposes behind songwriting and performance. What if music played a role in varying and improving the instruction of Africa in classrooms throughout the United States? It's a region of our world that hasn't been taught very well historically in America. There's a famous song that I love. It was performed by a Congolese guy named uh, uh, Joseph Cabasele. It's called Africa Mokili Mobimba, and that's a Lingala language, and it means Africa around the world. And I think about this sometimes. Um, you know, American culture is African culture in so many ways. The African-American presence in America is really as defining of our culture as, as any other single phenomenon. Like the, the presence of Africans in the Americas so early on, I think this is really an important thing to, to focus on as teachers and to find a way of expressing that. When we think about American instruments, musical instruments, like what could be more American than the banjo, right? It's an African instrument. It's white Americans got it from African Americans. American music is African American music and African American music is coming from Africa in a large part. It's hybrid though, all this stuff is hybrid. We'd be remiss to talk about music and not discuss instruments and the way they interact to produce a new whole out of their individual contributions. Instruments tend to have integrity of individuality as well as a, a sort of fundamental set of relationships with other instruments. When we think about talking about Africa with students. African music is a specialty of mine, but to me, the music's always embodied in, in culture and politics. So these are a couple things I'd really recommend thinking about, is thinking about polyphony and what that means for many voices to be um, working together and the sense of responsibility each person has to the group and that the group has to the individual as well. Um, and then thinking of this idea of Sankofa, which is the kind of go back and take. So part of preservation is about keeping the spirit of something alive. Whether fighting against colonialism, apartheid, or corruption, music continues to be a potent force of protest and change in Africa drawing its audiences into philosophical and political conversations under the guise of entertainment, there's a social justice-oriented praxis that comes from the acts of making and listening to music, particularly when it begets action in the streets or in the voting booth. 
Whether it's Fela Kuti's Afrobeat or Yetta Mare's hip-hop, the fault lines between art and politics are not so clearly delineated. That's it for today's episode. What Teachers Need to Know Africa Edition is a production of Primary Source, an education nonprofit dedicated to bringing the world into classrooms through teacher professional development and curriculum design. To learn more about Primary Source and to explore our podcasts and other resources further, visit www.primarysource.org. Thanks to the African Studies Center at Boston University whose support and collaboration made the creation of this podcast possible. To learn more about the center, visit www.bu.edu Africa. And to learn more about the center's Teaching Africa Outreach Program, visit www.bu.edu Africa slash outreach. I'm Dan from Primary Source. Thanks again for listening.